looks like we're ready. Okay, James chapter 5. James chapter 5, and we'll begin with verse 7. Last week we dealt with the first uh, seven verses there in that passage, and the rich and their treatment of their laborers seems like a strange kind of a way to approach it, and yet, on the other hand... um, we find that it's really, when you think about where men are today, it's a very practical thing, and especially in the church, even those who have uh, accumulated their wealth for wrong ends. As a matter of fact, when he talks there about their wealth, he says it's become corroded and rusted, and he says you've heaped it up for the last days. And it's, the word for is actually the word in, in the last days. And so I think we've heard before that the last days really encompasses everything from the beginning of the church right up until today. So these men were just as guilty as anybody else today would be found guilty of heaping up for themselves. And when he says in in the last days, again, the, we mentioned that the article was not there, so it's just in last days. And any time you find something like that occurring, then he's talking about that which is um, emphasizing the character quality of something. So we're talking about the character quality of last days. And that's what the rich have done. And then we found out that they were doing this, and what was characterizing these last days was they were doing this, he said, to nourish their own hearts as in a day of slaughter. Fatten them up, as it were, as you would an oxen preparing it for uh, the sacrifice. Now, that doesn't leave a very good picture in my mind of what it would be like if I were to give my life over to such, such efforts as to accrue wealth in such a manner to fatten my heart up and know the end result was going to be a slaughter, a slitting of the throat to put the sacrifice on the altar. But we find that as James moves on, we find a different contrast. He says there then, in view of all of this, in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Be patient, therefore, in view of this treatment, this mistreatment of these wealthy estate owners, as it were, those who owned these many fields and were holding back the pay of the laborers and this abuse that you were experiencing, (coughs) he's telling them, be patient, long-suffering, or literally, long-tempered, 
That's what the word, if you break it down, it's a compound word, and it means long-tempered as opposed to short-tempered. So their attitude, their spirit, was to be one of enduring and being patient under such kind of treatment until the coming of the Lord, a time element. Well, I want to tell you something, that until can get to be a long time. And we, in our country, don't experience the pain of the until as much as many other parts of the world. Because after 2,000 years, nearly, we find that until basically just meant till the end of your life for most. In our day, maybe more so than many others, the until has a sense of or a ring of anticipation to it that means, you know, the Lord could come right now. And the until may be just a little bit shorter than the end of my life. But for these, it meant just to hang on and keep true and stay faithful in spite of the abuse until the coming of the Lord. Now that word coming then was a very strong uh, thing in the mind of, the, of, of the, these Jewish believers because it meant, and again, that's a compound word, and it has the word para, and we know that that means to come alongside of. And so it carries with it this idea of when the Lord comes, and he comes to be alongside of. That's why it's often translated presence. I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about Mary sitting there playing the piano and getting ready for the offertory, and then up comes Ken, and she was anticipating his coming. Not just that he would come and be here, but his coming to be right there by her side and play his instrument. Well, that's the picture that you have with this word coming here. It's perusia. And it means to come alongside and to be there, present. You know, there are other expressions in the New Testament that talk about the coming of the Lord that just mean the fact of his coming to earth in the future. But here he's talking about coming to be alongside of. And, of course, that was to be a comforting thing, a comforting thought to these who were having to endure all these afflictions that they were going under. So they were not supposed to be angry. They were not supposed to retaliate. They were not supposed to go on a march. They were not supposed to agitate against the government or against their employer or start a union. Oh, excuse me. I shouldn't have mentioned that, should I? (laughs) They were just supposed to endure. That's all he asked them to do. Stay true to the Lord under these trying circumstances. And by the way, that word patient there then. Hupo. It has the prefix hupo. It means to be under. 
to be under such a burden, under such abuse, and to still still stay true to the Lord in spite of all that they were having to go under. Now, James then feels it necessary to bring along an illustration, as he's done in other of these passages we've looked at. And he gives the illustration of a farmer, of all things, because <laughs> he just got done dealing with farmers up here, these wealthy farmers. But here he speaks of it in, a, in the positive sense of a farmer who goes out, plants his seed, and then it says, he waits for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience. Now, there you see the full expression of the meaning of that word patience because the translators put in there long patience, long-tempered, long-suffering, long patience, and waiting for it or over it, actually, waiting over it until he or it receive the early and latter rain. Now, of course, without the early and the latter rain, there wasn't going to be any production of of the fruit. So the farmer planted his seed in, in the fall. And, of course, if you were planting wheat or barley, you would have planted it in the fall. That's what we do here. You plant it in the fall. And uh, it grows up maybe yay high, stays nice and green through the winter months. But in Israel, they look for rain primarily. And they were looking for rain around the end of November through December and January, February. That was the early rains. And then there would be a lull in the rain and then along around the end of April through the month of May, then you had the latter rains. And without those rains, there could be no production of fruit. And the whole implication here is that once the farmer put the seed in the ground, once he planted the seed, it was out of his control. Everything else depended upon the Lord. It was an external influence upon the seed. And so then in like manner, he admonishes us to do the same thing. Be ye also patient. He now applies the illustration that he just gave and said, now, the way the farmer did that, here's how you do it. You also be patient. As a matter of fact, he says, be also patient, establish or establish or strengthen your hearts. You notice the immediate contrast between what the wealthy were doing in nourishing or fattening their hearts as opposed to what God is calling you and I to do to strengthen our hearts. Some translate that to make them... Uh, Make it like iron. Make it firm. But you know what? In other places in the scriptures, it tells us that God's the one that does that work of strengthening our hearts. But here, 
James says, you do it. You take on the responsibility of strengthening your own heart. As a matter of fact, if you look at, um, let's see, where I had that here somewhere, those verses. First um, Thessalonians chapter 3. So if you just turn back left, is there just a few pages? First Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 13. <clears throat> Verse 12, well, verse 11 says, Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, that is to the purpose, that he may establish your hearts, unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of There's that same word, the perusia, the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And then if you'll turn over to 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2 and verse 16. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. You see in both of those passages, in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, it's God the one who's doing the work in our hearts, establishing us, strengthening us. It's firming up. It's putting your heart in the kind of condition that will enable us to endure the trials and the testings and the afflictions of life without losing faith so that you can do it successfully. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10, so if you go back, to James, and then go on past there to the right just a little bit. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 10. Peter agrees with James in this regard. Where he says, wherefore, the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. And of course, the outcome then of that is for so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The point being, of course, the purpose that there is an end. Or a goal. And that is an entrance into Christ's everlasting kingdom. Or his age-lasting kingdom. James goes on to tell us then. Well, 
You be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. It's near. Therefore, he says in verse 9, grudge not or grumble not. Or literally, sigh not or groan. Don't groan or sigh against one another. Brethren. It's amazing to me how many times in this letter that James continues to call them brethren. To draw them back in as a reminder that they belong together. That they are brothers in Christ. That they have a common a commonality about them, that they do not stand alone. And so then he, when he says, grumble not or grudge not against one another, you have that same, uh, that same prefix we talked about last week, that word kata, which means down. It means don't groan or sigh down against one another. Of course, that's where they get the word against here. When he says, not one against another, that word against is where the, the whole idea of the uh, a down or kata comes from. So if you're speaking down at someone, you're speaking against them or grumbling against them, complaining against them. And the point of the whole thing that James is trying to get them to see is, is if, if you are all one as brethren... And you all have the same goal and same purpose and end in view. Then what purpose does it serve if you grumble and complain and look down at one of another? It doesn't produce anything except defeat. When rather there should be encouragement and building up and edifying and loving one another. Well, there's something even farther beyond that. He says, lest you be condemned. Lest you be judged. And James paints a picture for us that's pretty... (laughs) I don't even know for sure if I can give you the words I'd like to say. uh, Or wish I could say, maybe. When he says, the judge stands before the door. Or if you put that maybe in a more literal sense, the judge is standing at the door. Don't do this. Don't conduct yourself this way so that you won't be judged because the judge is standing at the door. Now, there's probably, I don't know for sure just exactly how I want to take that. Because you could take it that the Lord is standing at the doors. And by the way, it's plural. So you got this picture of a double door like we have here. And he's standing at the doors ready to enter into the judgment hall. I mean, boom, there it is. He doesn't have to go far to bring judgment. Is he looking forward to that ultimate day of judgment at the judgment seat of Christ? Could be, and some think that. But the immediacy that I see in this passage is the judge is standing right there for temporal judgment. Meaning judgment 
right now. And so that we put ourselves in a position like this, we put ourselves in a place where the judge is standing there ready to judge at any given moment because of our misconduct, because of our complaining and grumbling. Now, boy, that tell you, that puts it a little more at home, as it were, when you think of it that way. Now, I don't know which one's correct, or maybe they're both acceptable. It seems to me the temporal judgment here is in view, not the sense of the final judgment, because we do face temporal judgment. As a matter of fact, uh, it's brought forth a lot in, in, in the New Testament about judgment. When I say temporal judgment, I mean judgment now, here in time, now, not waiting for it all to occur at a future point in time at the judgment seat of Christ. No, judgment takes place even now. And it seems to me, when he says the judge is standing at the doors, it means right now we have put ourselves in a bad place. (laughs) And we can face judgment now. Well, as the antidote to that, James turns immediately as a means of encouraging his readers to say, take for an example, brethren, the prophets. You think about them, he says in verse 10, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord, and that's an important aspect to remember, they have spoken God's word. They have proclaimed in the name of the Lord and and suffering affliction and of patience. And there we find that same word again, long-suffering or being long-tempered. So we have the prophets then as an example for you and I of those who preach God's word, They suffered horribly at the hands of their fellow Jews when they prophesied against the evils in Jewish society and the sins of idolatry and so on, and even cost them their lives because of it. And yet, what James is painting for us here is a picture of those who endured with success all the way to the end of their life. They were long-tempered, patient. Matter of fact, he says in verse 11 then, in our day, James is saying, behold, we count them happy who endure or blessed. You know that word happy there is the same word translated blessed back in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor. We said that word meant, could be happy are the meek, happy are the poor, and so on. And those who mourn, happy. Full of joy for what they had to endure. You know, that adds 
um, to me, a tremendous amount of weight to the value they placed on the message of the gospel. The promises that they heard regarding the coming of Christ and the Messiah and the establishing of his kingdom and the promise of a future life with him in that kingdom was so real to them that they were able to bear up and withstand and endure through all the afflictions that they underwent preaching the gospel or prophesying in the name of the Lord. And then he goes on to add just a single example. Job. You've heard, he said, about Job. And that's a little interesting sidelight there. But, you know, you think, why did he say, well, you've heard about Job? If it was you and I, I would just say, well, you've read about Job, haven't you? But, you know, they didn't carry a Bible around with them. They had to go down to the synagogue and they had to listen to someone who would appear there to unroll the scroll and read to them the scriptures. So literally, they did hear. And they heard about Job. And he says, you have seen the end of the Lord that he is very pitiful and of tender mercy. And of course, we know what happened in the life of Job in uh, all that he went through. And he did complain about his sufferings and he wanted to talk to the Lord about it. But he never lost faith. He never lost faith in all of it. And in the end, the Lord did show himself to be pitiful and merciful towards Job. I don't know if if James in, was intentionally quoting Psalm 103. It, it appears that he was, but back in Psalm 103, verse 8, he may have been disclaiming this verse right here, where he says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. You know, we need to take heart in that. When you, when you read such things as we see here in, in this chapter in the book of James, and for me to preach such things, and you look at the strong warning and the negative aspect of what James is writing about, he sure does bring comfort to our hearts to let us know that if we have remained faithful, there is a, and I'm almost going to put this in a colloquial term here, there's a ton of mercy waiting for us. Plenteous, he says, in mercy. And I hope that we don't forget that, that God's mercy is really and truly great. And that we don't need to live our life out as we walk before him and as we seek to endure 
and do what we have to do to stay true to the Lord, that somehow, even at the end, bam, the hammer's going to come down and smash, and it's all going to be over with, and why did I waste my time doing that? It didn't do me any good anyway. Well, no, that's not the point. The point is, is if you do it, if you stay true and faithful, God is going to keep his word, and you will find heaps of mercy in that day. And that is a very comforting thought to me. A ton of mercy, or maybe I should say tons of mercy, a whole bunch. The King James word there is plenteous in Psalm 103 and verse 8. Here in, J- in James chapter 5, it's tender, tender mercy. I'm not sure what other kind of mercy you could have, but here it's tender mercy, and I look forward to that. You remember earlier in this same book, back in chapter 2 and verse 13, Do you see that? For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoices against judgment, or is victorious over, or triumphs over judgment. Sure, God is going to judge. But how we have conducted ourselves here, in large part, is a dictator of how God is going to judge us then and the degree to which he will extend his mercy to us. And, of course, back there in chapter 2, it had an awful lot to do with how we treat others. And that's what James is dealing with here in chapter 5, how we treat others. How we talk down to one another. And you notice how the context here and all of this is within the group of James's readers. And therefore the application is within the group of us who have claimed the gospel promises of a life that is yet to come when the Lord comes to establish his rule over the earth. And we want to lay claim to being a participant in that rule and share in that resurrection rule. Then we need to show mercy now. We need to ourselves be merciful in order for mercy to triumph at the judgment seat. If we don't. If our attitude is was, well, boy, you better ladies need to lay down the law. And let boom, 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 whatever happened, happen. Then that's what we need to expect when he comes to judge us. As he will lay the law down. Now we all like mercy when we stand before a judge. And then the last thing. Well, let me, let me, let me say something else before we go to that last thing. I got this little poem here. <laughs> You need to hear this. (laughs) To walk in love with saints above 
will be a wondrous glory to walk below with, uh, with saints below. Well, that's another story. <laughs> well, somehow, somehow, sometimes we can relate to such things, can't we? But I like to think that it doesn't have to be that way. And I know we, we brag a lot about even our own congregation and our own fellowship, our own assembly, the saints of God who come here on a Sunday morning or they join with us over the Internet and they, you assemble with us to worship the Lord. That there's a higher depth of devotion, a higher depth of loyalty, or maybe I could say a deeper depth of loyalty and devotion to one another because there is a higher and deeper devotion to the Lord himself. Because it will spill over. And as we continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3.18, that'll happen. And it will be that way. And lastly, I don't know where to th- how James throws this in here, this thing about oaths. You'll notice he says, but. That's oftentimes here, it's the little word day. It's oftentimes an adversity, meaning you're changing the subject, but it doesn't seem like he's changing the subject here, and yet he does seem like he's changing the subject. So I don't know. But you'll notice when he says above all things, that makes it sound like it's a continuation or a conclusive statement over things he's previously said. And so when he says, but above all things, my brothers, swear not. And by the way, that's a, um, well, hang on. I got that written down here somewhere too. Swear not. Yeah. It's an imperative. And it implies that the practice has been going on in the readers that James is addressing here. And he's just simply saying, stop it right now. (laughs) Just like you and I would say to our kids, stop it right now. Quit doing that. Swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath. But just simply let your yea be yea, and your nay nay, lest you fall into condemnation. Or again, unless you fall into judgment. And it seems to me like James is just trying to pull this all to a close to simplify life. To simplify the life of faith. So that we don't overcomplicate things. But simply let your... Yea, be yea, and your nay, nay. To make your word what it ought to be. And that when we live our life out before the Lord, it's a simple life. 
where our word stands, we don't have to, in other words, claim an oath in order to gain anybody's approval and especially God's approval. He's talking then, you see, about endurance. The long haul. Matter of fact, I, I, it's the long haul. I, should, I didn't tell you that, but I named this uh, message here, Faith Tested for the Long Haul. Because everything he's been dealing with and everything he's pointing to here is over a long period of time. And staying strong, strengthening your heart for the end that is in view. And that is the ultimate judgment to come, the ultimate fulfilling of the promises that that the Lord has given us through Jesus Christ, and that we will be participants in that coming resurrection. And to know that in that resurrection is going to be, I mean, if you really just think about the, the resurrection itself and all that means because everything else just flows out of the fact of resurrection. That means every other promise is going to be coming our way. But you know what? It's even better than that. It's even better than that because it all goes back to the resurrection. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact of his resurrection causes us or should cause us then to look forward with confidence to that future resurrection and to know that once resurrected, every promise we have read in Scripture just like that is ours. And mercy will come. Plenteous mercy. I think James left a lot unsaid for the simple reason that, as I stated several weeks ago, this book was one of the earliest books written. And the gospel was very, very fresh on their minds, and he assumed a lot that they understood. He doesn't go into a great depth to, to develop a lot of these, the doctrine that is associated with the coming of the Lord and so on. It's, it's assumed. And he assumed that his readers understood and knew these things. But he's writing to them admonishing them, shaking them up, as it were, to stand true to the Lord under every bit of trial and affliction that their faith faith was being tested with, and to stand true because the reward at the end was going to be worth it. And so will it be for you and I when it's all said and done at the end of the long haul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you in the name of Christ our Savior because you've given us such tremendous promises in the gospel 
And you've given us these things from the, from the, uh, the pen of James to encourage us, to warn us, to cause us to be careful about our walk, about our tongue, about loving one another, about being faithful, so that we might enjoy the promises of God and that which is to come yet in the future. Lord, here today, we're about to participate in a memorial, one you've commanded us to participate in, in the taking of bread and wine representing the blood and the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that as we do so, as we take of these elements, that we will consider, ponder, meditate upon the value of that which we are about to do. And to know the ultimate price that Jesus Christ paid for us has an element of truth and value that far exceeds anything this world would ever have to offer us. And so I pray that we might understand the call to separate and be sanctified and holy and remain apart from the world, which is, as Paul says, evil. It's an evil age in which we live, Father. Let us be wise and discerning concerning that which we have to have contact with each day so that we can uh, be the kind of Christian, the kind of believer that James is talking about. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen. Okay. We will uh, sing a brief hymn of invitation. If you'd like to come, you can do so. And at the end, then, we will... Uh, ask our men to come and we'll partake of the Lord's Supper. In the red book, hymn number 181, verse 5, verse 5, as we stand and sing. I am resolved and who will go with me? Come, friends, without delay. Taught by the Bible, led by the Spirit, we'll walk the heavenly way. I will hasten to Him, hasten so glad and free, hasten glad and free, Jesus.
the church at Corinth concerning the Lord's Supper. As we said, it's a memorial. It's something the Lord has given to us as one of the ordinances of the church in which we are to memorialize Christ. Something which we can physically do. One of the two things, actually, that we can physically do, the other being baptism, that are pictures for us of things that the Lord wants us to always remember and use to teach us. So he says here then, and he begins in um, verse uh, 18, Actually, verse 17, I'll start there. He says, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not that ye come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you. And a heresy here means uh, a a choosing, a self-willed choosing of an opinion among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. And that's another interesting word, that word manifest. It means to shine or be shining among you. The ones which are approved may be shining among you. Stand out from all the rest. When you come together, therefore, into one place, and that's what we've done this morning, the body of Christ, saints of God, assembled together here in one place. And when you do that, he's admonishing them because he says this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone takes before the other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. What, have you not houses to eat and drink in, or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. This is the order which Paul is now setting forth for the church at Corinth, and of course for you and I to follow. The same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. Well, that's what we need to do then. We need to stop, and we need to give thanks. I want to ask Brother Angus, if you would mind standing where you are there and give thanks to the Lord for the bread. Amen. Okay, men, if you come and take these elements and uh, distribute them.
said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Several thoughts go through my mind. <clears throat> Number one, that's unleavened bread. <laughs> it doesn't taste very good. But of course, that's a, that's a lesson all of its own, isn't it? That we're to be clean and pure of sin. And then even here in the distribution of the elements, um, we designed this for the idea of serving. And of course, as, as these two have distributed the elements and served you, then they come up here, put the plates down, sit down, I serve them. Of course, they served me previous to that. It's all about service. And, of course, many other things that we can focus on as we remember the Lord. Verse 25 says, After the same manner also he took the cup, and when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And, of course, we want to thank the Lord for the cup in the same manner we realize the symbolism of the cup and the blood that he shed for us. Brother Jack, would you please, where you are, thank the Lord for the blood that he shed for us. Amen. And that's what it should do, shouldn't it? It ought to bring a little bit of emotion to us. This is not just some dry formula that we walk through. And I struggle with that every time I do this, to bring a proper balance of what it means to remember the Lord and what he's done for us. To bring that sense of emotion into because I think we leave that out too often. And we forget it. All right. Guys, if you would come and distribute the elements.
why they make those things out of metal, I'm not sure. You always have to be careful. You know, make a big noise. All right. Again, he said, after the same manner, he took the cup, and when he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Okay, you can leave your cups there in the pews, and uh, we have some grandkids or others that will be glad to come around and collect those. They like to lick the rest of the juice out of them. So. <laughs> They'll be pretty clean when they get done. Yeah. <clears throat> they sang a hymn and went out. And that's what we'll do. You know, you wonder... And I, you think back, I'm trying, I just try to picture the demeanor and the character of what was going on when that group of disciples and Jesus was gathered together, or conversely, when the New Testament church was gathered together. Because on the one hand, it, you, you get this picture of solemnity with Jesus and his disciples, and yet they turned around and sang a hymn, but it was a pretty solemn thing when you think about the fact that the Lord was on his way to the cross. And yet in the church, there was a love feast commemorated in conjunction with memorializing the Lord and his death, but also his resurrection. And so there was joy and happiness connected with it as well. I always have mixed emotions about how to act. How should I feel? What should I, what should be going on inside me? Sometimes I've had a few occasions where I've felt like Jack. I just want to sit there and cry. I had one occasion I can tell you about where I sat there and I, I honestly, it's, it's we're the only instance I've ever had this in my whole life where I felt the Lord came right and was right there with me by my side. I had it happen one time. This just awesome sense of his presence. And it didn't last very long. I remember one time reading about a guy who was missionary. He was down in Brazil. And uh, it was Christmas. And he was meditating and thinking over these kinds of things. And he just felt this awesome sense of the Lord's presence. He said it lasted for about a half an hour. I've never had that happen to me. But one time, I can tell you right where I was over at Grace Baptist Church, sitting in the pew there. And it was a precious time, and I'll never forget it. But again, I get conflicted over all that, how to experience that. And it was just a, a treasure. And I hope that when you and I come to experience the Lord's Supper, that there's been a preparation made, though, in our own hearts. so that we can experience and enjoy all that the Lord has for us in memorializing him for what he's done for us. Well, they sang a hymn. Brother Bob, where'd he go? There he is. We'll sing a hymn. 220. 220? 